Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada. Your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Théo Martin. Join us as we showcase treasures from our vaults, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. Welcome to Treasures Revealed. In this podcast series, we'll be showcasing certain items in the Library and Archives Canada collection. Each episode, we'll speak to a LAC employee and highlight an item that they consider a real treasure in our collection. They may be rare items, perhaps unusual or valuable, or items with historical significance. Perhaps they will have a compelling or interesting story to go along with them. More importantly, all of them will showcase our vast and rich collection that is the shared documentary heritage of all Canadians. Now, on to episode 13, Nell Shipman, Silent Film. visual archivist working in private specialized media. Um, I've been working for uh, Library and Archives Canada since 1985 on contracts and then um, uh, more full-time a little later on in the 90s. But um, yeah, I've been here a while. The Library and Archives treasure we'll be discussing on this episode is the 1919 Canadian film Back to God's Country, directed by David Hartford co-written and starring Canadian actress Nell Shipman. Back to God's Country was the most successful silent film in Canadian history. Steve, tell us more. Sure, Back to God's Country is, is Canada's oldest surviving feature film. It was produced in 1919. It's also the most successful silent film in Canadian history. It was produced in, um, say, in 1919 by the husband and wife team of producer Ernest Sh- and Nell Shipman. Nell Shipman wrote and starred in the film, and the couple were the driving force behind it. Um, Back to God's Country is a, it's a story adapted from a short story called Wappy the Walrus by James Oliver Curwood, and Shipman had um, uh, produced some of his short um, stories into other film works as well, this being the most successful. Uh, she changed the lead role in the film from what was a brave dog to Shipman's character, who was Dolores LeBeau. And she went on to direct nine other films, including many in the U.S., um, but this film is considered to be her, her greatest achievement. And the film, basically, it's a classic melodrama of the time, so a lot of thrills in here. You've got, it features violence, voyeurism, there's nudity in the film. It's the first nude scene, um, Canadian nude scene, and it was promoted under that as well. Um, it's got chase scenes, stunts, um, well made, which they perform themselves, including Nell Shipman, live wild animals, and uh, a bona fide female action heroine. So it's, a, it's quite a contrast to what um, many people, certainly at the time, would consider uh, Canadian cinema to be. Like Steve mentions, the short story by James Kerwood was adapted to the screen by Nell Shipman herself. 
She transformed the brave and faithful dog of the film to a brave and faithful heroine, Dolores Lebeau. Lebeau's love affair with a government surveyor triggers a lusty tale of jealousy, murder, and betrayal. Shipman also has her character save her husband, which reportedly infuriated the story's author Kerwood, but commercially, the film was extremely successful, posting a 300% profit and grossing $1.5 million. Today, that would be a profit of more than $26 million. Touching on another difference, in watching this film through a modern lens, there are racial depictions that are problematic. As historical content is preserved as much as possible in an unaltered state, the film reflects the time in which it was created. Can you expand on that, Steve? Uh, there's some racist scenes, there's some offensive scenes in the film, which um, uh, we certainly give a warning about when, uh, when we do screen the film. Uh, it's of its time. Um, but the film, um, other than those shortcomings, uh, as part of the time, um, holds up as a, as a drama and something that, um, you know, gets your interest and gets you into the film, which is, which is still kind of cool, I think, this many years later. Steve, what can you tell us about the film's star and creator, Nell Shipman? So, Nell Shipman was um, recognized among some film buffs, but she has a pretty low profile considering her achievements. And she was a Canadian film pioneer and the first Canadian female film director. She was a force in the industry as both an actor an author, she was a screenwriter, producer, director, uh, distributor, and an animal trainer. She has a real affinity for animals, which is shown in the film. She's a devoted, devoted environmentalist, animal rights pioneer. She campaigned for the humane treatment of animals in the film industry, even back then. And she surrounds herself with animals in the film. And you can really see um, the rapport she has with animals, including wild animals. Shipman was one of the first to shoot films entirely on location, including outdoor scenes in Back to God's Country, shot at Great Slave Lake, Alberta, and other outdoor locations in Idaho and California. Um, she performs, as I mentioned, her own stunts. Um, there's a scene of her, the character Dolores, being swept downstream in the rapids at one point. And it's shot with uh, Shipman and not a stunt double. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, she contributed the first nude scene. So, you know, also the, the savvy of um, using that to promote the film as well. Um, and, and part of the, uh, the campaign was called Is the Nude Rude? So these were ads that went in, uh, in the papers. Um, and it's a sequence that, yeah, intentionally stoked controversy. Um, when they, as I say, they made it the focus of the campaign for the film. And um, the film really establishes her as a force to be reckoned with in the industry until the major Hollywood studios, virtual monopolization of the market in the early 1920s, which progressively squeezed out independents like Shipman and in particular marginalizing women and uh, effectively erasing the possibility for an alternate history of Canadian film. Yeah, she was quite, uh, she was an impressive, uh, an impressive force in film and really um, not perhaps as well known as, uh, as she could be considering what she, uh, what she achieved. Steve, tell us more about this nude scene. Well, it wasn't, I mean, it's not, uh, 
lascivious in the same way that it's nothing compared to what you would see today in a in a nude scene. It's from a distance. The guy's kind of he comes across her bathing in a stream. Um, you see her kind of from behind, and she's swimming for a bit. So, um, I mean, they use it p- to promote the film. Uh, you know, there was in Hollywood there was the Hayes Code that was introduced later on, which uh, really restricted the kind of things they could show in films. Um, that was that that was applying to Hollywood films. So the standard really wasn't the same early on, and same as as it became in the later twenties and thirties. And when that code, I don't know, can't remember exactly when that code uh, was enforced. But things became a, a lot more tame, and they were very careful, and they had people watching scenes. But back then, um, you know, it was certainly new, and uh, it caused caused a stir. It may have, you know, certainly may have contributed to the early interest in the film. But it was also, you know, it was a really well made film as well. First published in March 1930, the Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code was the first attempt at introducing film censorship in the U.S. through laying down a series of guidelines to film producers. Steve, what sort of preservation work was done here at LAC to restore the physical film itself? So it was preserved, uh, it was a restoration. 35-millimeter print that was created at LAC, which came from two separate prints, one that was held by the American Film Institute and the other from our private collector, J.D. Cunningham of England. And the restoration was supervised by the, what was at the time, the National Archives of Canada's senior archivist, D.J. Turner, in collaboration with preservation staff. So they made new elements of the correct running speed, preserving the tinting and tones of the original rather than shooting in black and white. And it was, um, so they used that in, in early film before color. They would use tinting and tones in the production afterwards in the processing in order to create, um, create moods. So if it was a somber scene, it would be, you know, there'd be a blue tint. And so everything's, you know, got a blue haze on it. And then um, if it was, uh, you know, a scene that was dramatic, it may be, may shift to orange or red. So that was how they, um, they, they expressed drama and uh, different moods in the film. Um, and they also, uh, filters were used to match the original tints of, uh, of the film in the processing. Some frames were large because there's a lot of deterioration on the, on the frames at the edge of the frame. So they would have been enlarged so to eliminate the, the distracting deterioration that you see fluttering on the screen. Um, and some of the intertitles, so you've got, you know, you'll have a shot of action and then you'll have an intertitle describing what's happening or the dialogue comes up. And if those were quite damaged, they would pick, so they being the preservation people at, at AAC, would pick a frame that... Uh, that was less um, deteriorated, and they would freeze on that frame for the right number of frames, you know, what to get the same time period. Uh, so it gives it, it's a little bit of an unusual look because you don't see the flutter of the film turning. It kind of freezes, but allows you to clearly read um, what the, because it's very distracting because sometimes that deterioration would cut into the words and it made it hard to read. Um, so that was another, um, that was another effect they used. Um, all of the cleaning, Preparation of the prints, transfers, and um, the optical printing was done at LEC um, with the correcting done uh, of the colors at a lab in Toronto. The restoration, 
done at LAC in the mid-1980s, received international attention and praise. Steve tells us more about the restoration. When they found the other print, they also found out that the film was shot with like two camera crews sort of standing side by side. I'm not sure the reason, what the reason was for that. So you had slightly different angle. Like it'd be very subtle, but a slightly different angle was um, for each film. So what they did was they went back and forth and said, okay, what's the best, what's the best shot they have here? And what's the best quality? So it was a lot of, um, there's a lot of decision making in that kind of a restoration back and forth without having the benefit of the, uh, you know, the original creators of the film there to, to, to let them know, well, here's what we're doing here and here's what we, we want with this shot here. Um, so it really was, it's a, it's, you know, it's a separate creation that, um, that LAC put together from the available elements uh, uh, that they had. And, and this is a time, too, when there was not film distribution in the same way that like it would be distributed, it would be seen in theaters, and that would be it. There'd be no, I mean, even in the 1980s, you had a second life with the VHS videotape uh, for rentals. Here, you had one shot, and that was it. it, it there wasn't um, second runs or uh, you weren't going to watch it online. Um, so there wasn't the same archival um, interest in preserving this work, even from the, uh, the perspective of the studios, which would be able to reissue it later and still have it as uh, these films as a source of revenue. So a lot of the times, um, with prints, they were uh, at the end of their run, they were just tossed. So um, you know, it's kind of its service purpose. So finding the prints, they were just collectors would have these prints in their collection that were who were interested in the work, and that's how a lot of this work got uh, got saved and restored and restored. Steve, in your opinion. Why is this a treasure? Well, really, it's, there's a number of reasons. It's the oldest um, surviving Canadian feature film. There was another film, um, Evangeline, which was made in 1915, uh, which is a lost film. Uh, this is the oldest surviving film, the most successful film, and also because it's such a showcase for Nell Shipman. Um, you know, she was, uh, as I mentioned, she was uh, an incredible talent, and force in the industry. And she was offered, uh, I think Metro Goldwyn offered her, Samuel Goldwyn offered her a contract uh, for the Hollywood series, which she turned down and formed her own studios. Nell Shipman turned down a contract with Samuel Goldwyn in favor of independent productions. Her preference for independent cinema led her to start two producing companies, Shipman Kerwood Producing Company and Nell Shipman Productions. It's also, it's, it's, it's prominent it's just as a uh, something that LEC had restored and brought back to notoriety, whereas you had these two prints um, that were sort of in obscurity. Uh, they were available, but now once it, well, it got restored, it was in a really good print and could be seen again. It was shown at the Toronto Film Festival after the restoration. Um, you know, we got uh, in, interest from the United States, so uh, it did become uh, sort of a a film that was that was reestablished thanks to this work and particularly to the work of LEC, which was uh, uh, something at the time that they were able to do. Nell Shipman is considered by some to be the first lady of Canadian cinema. Throughout her life, Shipman wrote many scripts and short stories. One of her stories was adapted for the American film Wings in the Dark, 1935, starring Myrna Loy and Cary Grant. If you're interested in viewing some stills and even advertisements from the film, 
you can go to Lack's Flickr page. There, you will find an album of images called Treasures Revealed. We will update that album with each episode, giving you a chance to view the treasures that we will be highlighting. You can also view Back to God's Country in its entirety over at Lack's YouTube page. Thank you for being with us. I'm Théo Martin, your host. You've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thank you to our guest today, Steve Moore. Special thanks also to Isabelle Larocque for her contributions to this episode. The music in this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was produced, engineered, and edited by David Knox, with additional editing and sound design by Tom Thompson. If you liked this episode, you're invited to subscribe to the podcast. You can do it through the RSS feed located on our website, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you're interested in listening to the French equivalent of our podcast, you can find French-language versions of all our episodes on our website, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Simply search for Découvrez Bibliothèque et Archives Canada. For more information on our podcasts, go to LAC's homepage and type podcast in the search bar in the top right corner and click on the first link. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can find the email address for the podcast team located at the bottom of the episode page. <laughs>